Okay, everyone, we'll uh, get started. Actually, although a little bit afternoon, it's a little bit earlier than uh, than we usually wait just to get the ball rolling. But just want to introduce Dr. Uh, Lewis Rubinson. Most of you are familiar with him. Um, he is trained at all the highlights, like a highlight reel of uh, medical education training around the, the country and, and brings his expertise here um, that he's on, on a topic that he's lectured on uh, internationally and, and for us before as well. And, and um, I'm sure you'll, you'll learn a lot uh, today about uh, managing status asthmaticus. Um, Dr. Rubinson, uh, I'll let you Thanks, continue. Right. Thanks so much. So today I'm going to talk about status asthmaticus. You know, usually when we're talking about ventilator strategies, I think we give uh, most attention to ARDS. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, ARDS is much easier to manage uh, on a ventilator than uh, when people have severe airflow obstruction. So hopefully today um, we'll, uh, and please stop me if you guys have a question, we'll be able to discuss some of the nuances of the struggles of being able to manage someone who has status asthmaticus. And some of the uh, strategies are actually opposite of what we normally would want to do for patients. And given that we have much better controlling meds out nowadays, uh, unless you're at a referral center, the likelihood of you seeing a lot of this disease requiring mechanical ventilation is quite limited. So in a lot of ways, uh, ventilating Status asthmaticus is kind of the vascular equivalent of, there are not many vascular surgeons that are really good at big open surgeries anymore because of the endovascular approaches and other approaches. This is kind of the same thing where uh, for some of us who have gray hair, we used to do this all the time. We do it less and less, and because of that, we see more and more problems when we get people referred in from outside facilities and even within our facility. Sometimes people making calls that are absolutely well-intentioned, but are probably not the best strategies for a patient who's an extremist on a ventilator uh, from asthma. So just by way of disclosure, um, I have some federal contract uh, money, and I also uh, do advising for some companies, but none of the things I'm going to talk about today are uh, related to any of the uh, uh, stuff with industry. So, as I mentioned, the reason why it's difficult to ventilate people with asthma is we don't have to do it that often. So for our EM colleagues, they see plenty of asthma coming through the emergency department, but three quarters of those folks are going to go home and not even get admitted. Of the people who do get admitted, only 10% go to the ICU. And of the folks in the ICU, only about a third require invasive mechanical ventilation. So you're talking about a really small subset. But that's the subset that drives the mortality for people who've survived long enough to make it to the emergency department and are admitted, who then subsequently die in the hospital. It's all those folks in our ICUs who are real struggle to be able to ventilate. Um, so I'm going to talk about this group, the life-threatening status asthmaticus, the ones that really um, increases everyone's sphincter tone, and they're really, really difficult to manage. And a lot of times, they're young patients. So it creates that additional emotional uh, turmoil of you know things that you know this patient should not die of, but it's really hard to be able to manage them. So again, how do we define this? It's defined in a variety of different ways. There's not a lot of great uh, ways at getting at it. Some people talk about kind of the clinical perspective. You'll know it when you see it, right? The person who's tripoding, who can't speak to you, uh, who doesn't have vocal cord dysfunction, but in fact has uh, airflow obstruction, or we'll try and quantify by peak expiratory flow, uh, although I'll show you in a slide, that's not always the greatest predictor of who really has severe disease. Ultimately, it's someone who needs some sort of mechanical support to be able to manage their respiratory mechanics. Um, we all got taught in med school, there are a variety of different uh, signs and symptoms of severe asthma. Even pulses, though, is not a very reliable sign of trying to figure out who really has life-threatening in extremis uh, status. And when the patient first comes to you, it's not necessarily a great predictor of who's going to go on to need very advanced care. Probably the best thing is kind of no duh. It's those who don't respond to bronchodilators and continue to get worse are the people that we need to focus on. So in this slide, um, 
Both groups kind of started with low peak expiratory flow. Uh, this group started to have a bronchodilator response and their peak expiratory flow improved, but those who didn't went on to admission and required more advanced care. Whoops. And then there's the other socioeconomic features and other historical features that we know that kind of help us start to figure out, is this a person who's really at high risk? If we hear that this patient's been intubated three times in the last five years, clearly you know that they have high potential for uh, crashing pretty hard. Uh, we also know that some, uh, again, the environmental as well as so uh, socioeconomic features may make it harder for someone to be in care, to be uh, regularly using a good disease-modifying and controlling agent. That person may, at best, use a bronchodilator, but they, in fact, tend to smoke a lot and have a lot of environmental triggers that can make their disease go from zero to 50 pretty quickly. Um, Remember that asthma is kind of the three S's. So there's airway edema, so the swelling, they're bronchospastic, and they have a lot of mucus plugging and secretions. And that's going to be the struggle of getting air in, but more importantly, being able to get air out uh, when you're trying to ventilate them. So we're trying to improve airflow. The big thing that's going to get them in trouble is the hyperinflation and air trapping. And ultimately, to reduce kind of the feed forward loop of inflammation so that we can stop the process and break their asthma exacerbation. Um, this is the only slide I'm going to talk about kind of the pharmacotherapy. Um, uh, clearly, we know beta agonists uh, have a huge role. And uh, we all play the systemic corticosteroid game. Um, for patients, probably pediatrics as well, the anticholinergics have some benefit. Um, if you play the magnesium game, it depends what camp uh, you live in. It's probably harmless, but it's probably not that helpful. Maybe in high doses in very severe disease, you can give it a try. Same with terbutaline, kind of comes in favor, out of favor. Um, and what I'm going to talk about is, oops, this box didn't present well, is whether or not non-invasive has a role, and when it's got a role, the use of heliox, and ultimately strategies for invasive mechanical ventilation, and then some of the additional adjuncts such as ECMO. So non-invasive ventilation, clearly in COPD exacerbations that are hemodynamically stable, uh, that don't have rapidly progressive hypoxemia, it's the mainstay of therapy, right? And when we talk about asthma, though, there's been a lot more controversy. So when I trained, uh, a lot of us were hesitant to consider non-invasive because you have an unprotected airway that's trying to force a bunch of air in. And if it's going to go to the path of least resistance, it'll probably go in the esophagus into the stomach, more likely than into the trachea. And in that situation, you could hyperinflate the stomach change the positioning of the diaphragms and actually mechanically disadvantage the patient. So we were hesitant at first. It did start to really get applied, and we do realize that uh, there probably is a benefit from expanding from the COPD literature and some of the other literature, probably because most status asthmaticus breaks relatively early, so you don't need to use a mask interface for weeks for most of these patients, so that's probably beneficial. We do know that some people, when you put an endotracheal tube, you can worsen their bronchospasm acutely, so you're avoiding being able to do that. And there's um, some data on uh, reduction in pneumonia. The potential pitfalls are mechanics, as I had mentioned, and probably the biggest one is going from an urgent to an emergent intubation, right? If you're going to put someone on non-invasive, that's not where you put them in a room with a closed door where no one watches them, and you go in and on checking them in two or three hours. Because that may be a very, very bad thing that you find in there. And now you've gone from kind of a protected situation to now a crash intubation with a patient who's very bronchospastic, who may be hemodynamically compromised. And so now, again, you're taking something that could have been done in a controlled environment to a crash environment. Um, there are different strategies of how you want to apply non-invasive in terms of the goals, depending on the severity. So we do think that it helps to administer medication better. Uh, so early on, it can be used for being able to give inhaled delivery of drugs in a better way. And then ultimately, you're moving towards improving mechanics and trying to avoid the downside of an endotracheal tube. But of course, buyer beware, right? As I mentioned, this is not 
uh, write the order for 10 over 5, throw them in a corner, and go see 15 other patients, and then come back and see this person. It requires a relationship with that patient that if you're going to put it on, you have to watch them immediately to see does the respiratory rate change, do their mechanics improve, uh, and do they get worse or do they get better? And if they get better, then you're, uh, the relationship you've established is you're committed to close monitoring on that patient until you're sure they're out of harm's way. Um, despite the historical resistance, especially from the world I'm in, which is pulmonology, um, there was application of use of non-invasive for asthma. Probably the uh, emergency medicine folks were a little quicker than some of us uh, to be able to apply it. And it's really, its use has taken off over years. Uh, and how, how have we done with it? Um, sorry this doesn't project as well, but down here there's about 14,000 patients. Um, about 90% of those patients don't require any mechanical support, whether non-invasive or invasive. About 5% of those people get intubated right away. So that's either someone who's an extremist right when they hit your door, or they've been intubated by EMS, or they've coded in the field, and then you intubate them right when they come in. And then there's this group also of 4%, about the equivalent to how many are invasively intubated up front, who go on to non-invasive. And 95% of those people can be managed with non-invasive without requiring invasive intubation. So it's clearly got a role. The issue is, what's the downside? So for the patient who worsens, um, there's a length of stay uh, increase for people who fail. And part of that's kind of like, again, no duh, those who are too sick to be managed with non-invasive or people who actually have a long stay in the hospital. Um, but there is potentially a question of, are we potentially making them worse, again, through aspiration and some other mechanical stuff? Probably, if we intubate relatively early, it's very reasonable to use non-invasive. You'll get away with almost everyone doing it. And if you pull the trigger on intubation quickly, hopefully you will not see an increase in mortality, but you know that those people are high risk for mortality. So, as I mentioned, it's very, very reasonable, but it should be used with a lot of caution. Um, I typically set my pH uh, cutoff, although it's not written in stone, between about 7.15 and 7.2. If someone's pH is even lower, I typically get fairly worried. Most of those people are also hemodynamically compromised if their pH is that low uh, with their asthma, unlike in COPD, where you could probably get away easier, or a neuromuscular ventilatory failure where you can still use non-invasive and rescue those patients. In asthma, I tend to have my pH cut off a little higher. So close monitoring. And then remember, non-invasive is a ventilator, right? So just because it's using a mask appliance rather than an endotracheal tube, you still have to strategize. Not everyone gets 12 over 5, or not everyone gets 10 over 5. Your IPAP should be set so that your delta between your IPAP and your EPAP is such that you get about 6 to 7 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight tidal volume. And your EPAP should be set for your trigger sensitivity, right? So these people are still spontaneously breathing. If they have some auto-peep, they have to suck down from the auto-peep below the peep level to the trigger sensitivity to be able to make the machine work. So if you see the person doing this and the machine doesn't deliver a breath, clearly you need to either adjust the trigger sensitivity or you need to change your strategy from non-invasive to invasive. Watch the respiratory rate. If they're breathing 40 times a minute with asthma on non-invasive and it doesn't get lower over time, that's someone who's failed. So I avoid in nonverbal patients, again, different than in some of the other diseases where we know sometimes the hypercapnia can get better and we can waken people on non-invasive. But in people who have really bad asthma, if they're non-verbal, that's a patient who's pretty close to coding and non-invasive probably doesn't have much of a role. The hemodynamically unstable patient as well, um, if they keep pulling at the mask despite doing a lot of conversation with them and really trying to talk them through it, that's someone who's going to get in trouble because they're also using a lot of their energy uh, and they're probably increasing their CO2 uh, and also they're quite dyssynchronous with your appliance. 
So I'm going to go through a case. This was a real case that we had a few years ago. Um, so it was a 24-year-old woman. She had known asthma, uh, and she presented to an outside ED. She had what was described as three days of uh, worsening shortness of breath. And this was her first chest x-ray. Um, so clearly, she was hyperinflated. She had more infiltrates than you would expect with that much hyperinflation. Uh, and she had some triggers to get her into trouble. Uh, she received the usual, so she got beta agonist, IV steroids, got some magnesium. And they started on non-invasive at a relatively low pH, but at that point in time, probably still reasonable. But they essentially put her on for three hours, and it's not really clear how much the patient was being watched. She then uh, failed peri-intubation. She had a large volume aspiration. She coded. They needled her. Um, they put a left chest tube in, put a right chest tube in, and they called, and you could hear the fear in their voice when the cardiac surgeon and I were on the phone talking to them. We asked, all right, so what, what ventilator settings are you using? Well, the ventilator is not working. We can't ventilate her. We're handbagging. Okay, what rate are you handbagging in? Like 28 to 30. So this is what her chest x-ray looked like from their management schema. So this is all iatrogenic, right? This almost doesn't, you can't even really tell necessarily that that's a chest x-ray. Look at the ribs. Look how hyperinflated she is, right? This was all from their strategy. Not because they were malicious, but they took someone who was just hyperinflated and they essentially made her pulseless and made her look like this. So where do you start when you get that call, right? So we first said, stop what you're doing. We had told them to paralyze her. If they could get a continuous uh, beta agonist through an aerogen or whatever mesh device they're using, and we told them to put RT on the, on the phone so we could tell them how to set the ventilator uh, to be able to manage it. We recommended VCAC. We told them, take your PIP alarm and turn it all the way to the right, right? So if your PIP alarm on most of our devices is over 105, turn it all the way, just like when we're doing bronchoscopy. Um, we told them, take the rate down. And that was where they got very hesitant. Wait, what do you mean? She's got a pH of a billion, and I mean a PCO2 of a billion and a pH of 6.8. We said most of that is because she's hyperinflated because of what you're doing. So just take her rate down. Uh, and we recommended, hey, if you need to sedate her, if she does wake up, put on some ketamine. And if you need any hemodynamic support, rather than using Levofed, just use some Epi uh, for the hemodynamic support. And we had ECMO waiting over here for when she got here. So why did we recommend what we did? Right. So the rest of the talk is essentially summarizing all of those different recommendations. So why do people die from status asthmaticus? So we used to think that they died from gas exchange abnormalities, but they die from us trying to normalize their gas exchange abnormalities. So they die from hemodynamic collapse, from hyperinflation. They die from barotrauma. They die, and this we can't necessarily help if they code before we get to the hospital unless we change kind of the whole delivery system. They die of anoxia uh, because they had already coded before you got them. Um, but remember, almost no one dies of respiratory acidosis, no matter how bad that respiratory acidosis is. There's very, very few people. There are some RV things that happen. But on the most part, you'll see people showing blood gases of 6.6 with a PCO2 too high to measure, and that person leaves the hospital without any adverse sequelae, right? So alone, and hypercapnia is not the strategy that we're trying to fix, right? We are trying to keep them from having hemodynamic collapse from their hyperinflation or developing tension pneumothorax that goes unnoticed. Uh, so initiating mechanical ventilation, uh, Obviously, you can use whatever sedation you want. If, uh, if you're comfortable with ketamine because of its bronchodilator effects, it's very reasonable. For some people who are adrenergically maximally stimulated, they may crash with that. So you have to make a decision uh, which drug to use. Um, this is where, on the medicine side, people tend to be very hesitant about using paralytics. 
Um, I've practiced on both sides and have worked mostly on the surgical side for the past 10 plus years. And every time we send someone to the OR, they get a, a paralytic if they're gonna, their belly's gonna get operated on. We have so much hesitance about it. It really, the issues around high dose steroids and neuromuscular blockading agents and uh, creating weakness is of questionable uh, um, uh, accuracy in terms of does that really exist? Um, so if you need to make them passive on the ventilator and you can't do it because they don't have enough blood pressure uh, with your sedation, pulling out a paralytic very early is clearly part of my strategy and most people's strategy for managing these people. Uh, we already talked about the non-invasive stuff. They don't need to have their pH normalized while you're trying to intubate them, right? You'll see people say, well, their PCO2 is 115 while we're bagging them, peri-intubation, let's blow them down. And what happens during that situation? That's where people ask, do we have a pulse anymore, right? So uh, typically, you're just going to hyperinflate that patient and get them in trouble. And then the other thing is just anticipate really high PIPs. So, not everyone after intubation gets the same vent settings. So one, if they don't have a high PIP post-intubation, well, what do they probably have? They probably had vocal cord dysfunction, right? Um, so you're going to expect, right, because the person who's failing is going to have a really high PIP. Expect that and create your ventilatory strategy to be able to manage them. If you, you know, essentially uh, do a, P, a PIP limit of 25 or 30 centimeters of water, and depending on what your flow is and your eye time, they may get a tidal volume of 50 cc's. So you really want to make sure that you have a good strategy so that you can actually get a bit of tidal volume in them. So what are the challenges? Getting air in, right? So people are scared of high airway pressures. And airway pressures, Ed just went, ah. Every time Ed sticks a bronchoscope in someone, he creates high airway pressures. Or if it's more like me and I step on the circuit accidentally. I create high airway pressures, right? But does that transmit to the alveoli? You know, are transpulmonary pressures injurious? No, right? So we need to sort out which high airway pressures are worrisome, and we'll get into the inspiratory plateau pressure, and we'll also talk about auto-peep in a few minutes. And remember, it's going to be because you need really high flows, and they have really high resistance. It's just the feature of this device. So if they have a PIP of 100, it stinks, but it's probably OK, depending on what their plateau is, right? Everyone's going to freak out about it, but it's because they haven't understood what are really the flow dynamics of what are going on with the patient. Reducing hypercapnia. That's also what everyone wants to do. Um, for our fellows, I'm sure when you guys have someone with a CO2 of 85 and a pH of 7.1, how many times do you get called to increase the respiratory rate, right? You get called every shift, or at least every shift, even more so, right? And I get it because it makes people worrisome, but the problem is the strategies we usually do to fix that will make this person worse, right? So of course we want to increase alveolar ventilation, right? That's how we reduce PCO2. But if you increase your minute ventilation, you are not guaranteed to increase your alveolar ventilation. In status asthmaticus, you actually may reduce your alveolar ventilation, right? If the patient gets more hyperinflated, you are going to change the perfusion to the lungs. So now you're going to have higher dead space. So paradoxically, by going up on the either the tidal volume or the respiratory rate, you in fact may increase the CO2, right? That's the struggle that we have with this disease. And then obviously, the big problem is allowing air out. All the strategies, again, that we want to do to be able to reduce the peak airway pressure will also extend the I time, shorten the E time, and get us into trouble. So volume ventilation, that's what most people do for this. That's my first go-to. Um, and remember, if your PIP is less than your P-alarm, you're going to get the set tidal volume. If they set the PIP alarm at 50 centimeters of water, and the device actually opens up the exhalation valve 10 centimeters below that, you may think you're getting on volume assist control and getting a reliable volume, but in fact you aren't. The machine hits the pressure limit and then dumps the rest of the volume outside of the patient. So it's 
very, very important that your airway alarm is linked to your strategy so the patient is still getting what they want. Um, and the downside of volume ventilation is obviously it is uh, agnostic of what's happening to the plateau pressure of the patient and to uh, the auto peep, right? So you can absolutely injure someone on volume assist control, right? The control and pressure control, I know that my P plat is not going to be above my pressure limit, right? So I can ensure that I don't have what I consider to be an injurious P plat, although that's controversial, right? What is an injurious P plat? But at the same time, I may get no tidal volume, right? So it's all good. I didn't injure their lungs from barotrauma, but I gave them a tidal volume of 25 cc's times 10 breaths, and that's not enough to live on. You know, if they're on ECMO, no problem. If they're not on ECMO, that's probably not a great strategy. There is some benefit to pressure control in terms of if the patient has various different time constants, you're going to be more uniformly distributing gas by holding at an equivalent pressure. But that's like ventilator 401. That's where you're at the bedside, you're watching what you're doing. And again, not an unreasonable strategy, but that's not where you put the order in and you go and take care of a whole bunch of other people. You need to make sure that was the right strategy. And there is actually some data, especially in the pediatric literature, that pressure control can be used for patients with status asthmaticus. Again, typically in smaller patients that require much smaller volumes, you can get away with this. So this was the patient. So we sent first the Hamilton T1 down uh, with our team to pick the patient up. And the T1 pressure limited and was unable to deliver any tidal volume. So we sent a second ambulance down with a servo eye uh, because our draggers are too big to go in our ambulance. And you can see the patient had a peak inspiratory pressure of 105. And the respiratory therapist sent me this on the iPhone and said, are you cool with that? I said, well, what was the P-plat on the patient? Uh, and he said, uh, it was about 45, which is higher than I wanted. But I said, perfect, come on back. Do what you're doing. So how do I set the ventilator? So I usually, you know, especially late at night, as I've gotten older and my brain doesn't work as well, I use M-trip, uh, which covers most of the things I need to do on the ventilator, which is mode. So I put the patient on volume assist control, tidal volume. So I set it, again, about six to seven cc's ideal body weight, not actual body weight uh, for the American habitus. Respiratory rate, typically I'll start 12 to 14, but if they're really, really sick, I'll start even lower. So again, not higher, lower in those patients. FiO2, most of these people don't have hypoxemia as a major part of their problem. So FiO2, I just set to kind of keep uh, the SAT above 88%, and the FiO2 will come in a discussion with Heliox, because if you're going to use Heliox, there's only so much oxygen that you can uh, put in through the ventilator to be able to do that. And PEEP, we'll talk a little bit about, is PEEP okay uh, in status asthmaticus? Uh, again, when Sam and I uh, trained, we were taught no PEEP in asthma, just like in, in uh, brain-injured patients. We used what was called ZEEP, um, zero of PEEP. But Clearly, PEEP is okay, and we'll talk about how much PEEP is probably okay in these patients. So this is the most important thing in terms of understanding airway pressure, right? So we know that in a passively uh, breathing patient, so one who doesn't have PMUS as part of the component, the components of your airway pressure are going to be what PEEP did you start from, and then the pressure due to moving gas through resistance, and then the pressure due to expanding the lungs, the chest wall, and the belly, right? So the, either the elastance or the compliance of that system. And the peak inspiratory pressure is going to see all of that on a volume mode, right? So your PIP may be very high if you have really stiff lungs, stiff belly, stiff chest wall, or if you have really bronchoconstricted airways. Your plateau, we put a hold at the end of the breath. Right? And the flow goes to zero. So if you think about P equals QR, right? Pressure equals flow times resistance. The pressure change due to moving gas through the airways goes to zero. 
So the component due to uh, airway obstruction gets dropped out. And now you're just measuring the pressure to expand the lungs, the chest wall, and the belly at the tidal volume that you breathe in, right? That's the plateau pressure. So if you have a huge difference, then you know that most of the determination of, peep, of PIP is due to airflow resistance. When you put a bronchoscope in the endotracheal tube, when there's a big booger in the endotracheal tube, when there's mucus in the proximal airways, when there's blood in the proximal airways, right? That's where your PIP to plateau will be really big. If it's a pneumothorax, your PIP to plateau is going to be really small, right? So airway pressure is going to come up. That's when you really worry, right? So if someone calls you and says the PIP's really high, you should say, what's the plateau, right? That's your next question. Because if the plateau is really high, there's some things that you may need to intervene on right away, such as do they need, uh, do they need uh, a chest tube? Um, is their ARDS getting worse, et cetera? So the PIP is something to pay attention to, but it's not something to respond to. It's the difference between PIP and plateau. All right, so how do we use this in practice? So again, I turn the airway pressure alarm all the way to the right in a really, really sick patient, right? We saw that patient had 104 centimeters of water uh, as their airway pressure. Um, and it doesn't mean that I don't think there couldn't be some harm Clearly, there may be some areas that get gas more than others in that volume mode because it's pushing flow in and it's going to go to where the least resistance is in the uh, airways and ultimately in the lungs. But it's generally safe if the plateau is low and the PIP is high. Um, and um, how many people have seen Spinal Tap? So this is kind of where you talk about where the pressure alarm should go to 11 when you need that little extra. So I turn the knob to the right and then turn it some more um, and just ignore that high airway pressure. Um, as, long, whoops, as long as the P-plat is low-ish, and we'll talk about what low-ish is in a few minutes. Now the CO2 basics, right? So there are a few things to pay attention here. So if someone is working really hard to breathe, that's where production matters, right? So that's, again, a reason to make them passive. Um, if they're using a whole bunch of their cardiac output, to be able to try and trigger the ventilator and take a breath, you want to reduce that. And that's where paralysis is probably going to be your best strategy. And then remember, I talked about we want to actually improve alveolar ventilation. But alveolar ventilation doesn't always follow minute ventilation. And that's going to be the struggle where we're at. So if alveolar ventilation is really, really low because the patient has huge dead space, you're on this part of the curve. Right? And small improvements in alveolar ventilation will be a home run, and small decreases in alveolar ventilation will get you into more trouble. So this is why you need to watch these folks pretty closely. And again, normally, we just want to turn the tidal volume up and the respiratory rate up. That's the wrong strategy when they can't get the air out. Um, and this is a good experimental example of how do we actually do this? So this is from Leatherman, and just to kind of orient you guys. So this is the end expiratory volume. So if you just collect volume above FRC, that's how hyperinflated you are, right? So that's the hatches. And then this is the uh, tidal volume. And it's obviously super physiologic because it's an experiment, but it's a uh, one liter tidal volume. And then when you breathe at a rate of once every six seconds, so a uh, total rate of 10, when you have high flow versus lower flow, you can see you don't get very big change in the end expiratory uh, volume. However, if you look at 100 liters a minute here at a rate of 10 versus 100 liters a minute at a rate of 26, where the I time here is much shorter and the E time is way shorter, now all of a sudden you have a ton of hyperinflation, right? So the message on this first is the biggest bang for the buck to reduce hyperinflation is turn down your respiratory rate. Then the second message is for any respiratory rate, higher flow gives you more benefit than lower flow. But if you're just going to decide what am I going to do first, 
It's not just cranking up the flow. It's actually turning the tidal volume down. The problem in most of these patients is that's exactly opposite of what they want, right? You turn the tidal volume down, they still breathe a million times a minute, right? So you need to take them out of the game to actually get them to ride your ventilator. And we know that looking at waveforms, which all of us should get really good at being critical care practitioners, right? From the door, you should be, Anna, right? Like on rounds, this is what we would talk about. From the door, you should be able to look at your waveforms just like you can look up at a monitor at a continuous ECG and know is the patient having problems or not, right? And if you look at your flow uh, time tracer, you know that your flow should get back to zero way before the next breath, right? So if you see, and a lot of times we'll actually see more of a rowboat where this patient is nowhere close to getting back to flow to baseline before the next breath comes in. By definition, they're air trapping, right? Doesn't mean that they have severe hyperinflation, but you know they're air trapping. So, PCO2 doesn't kill people. How do we figure out how to sort all of this out, right? Because we don't want to keep the average person's PCO2 of 100, right? It's not deliberate hypercapnia, it's permissive hypercapnia. So what do we use to try and figure things out? So the first thing I do is I turn the respiratory rate down and then I'm gonna start assessing things. Now, if their PPAT's still really high and if their auto peep is still really high, then you start going into other things such as turning your flow, inspiratory flow, really high. And you can also switch from a decelerating waveform to a square wave to push the breath in faster. Um, once you get really an E time greater than five though, you don't get that much more benefit, right? So if you have a rate of 10 and your I time is gonna be set at like one, 1 1.2, uh, just so that your PIP isn't over 105. Um, when you try and take anything down further, you really don't get much benefit. So that's about as good as you're gonna get. Um, and then when do I worry about PCO2? So in this patient, I worried absolutely about it because she was, her pupils were fixed and she had coded. So normally I'd say, ah, PCO2 of 100, whatever, right? We'll get it down when we get it down. But post-code, clearly is someone you want to consider. Or if their RV's dead uh, due to whatever situation's going on, that's someone you need to get their CO2 down. And the only way we can really do that easily is to put them on ECMO. Um, so that would be the strategy where I will pull the trigger for ECMO relatively early. Even if mechanically I can still manage them because I know I'm gonna get stuck with a really low pH, a high PCO2, uh, and if I put them on ECMO, I don't need very high flows at all. I could just sweep away the CO2 and get them down to a eucapnic level to try and see if I could preserve their brain. So again, different strategy than just for asthma. All right, so if they're truly life-threatening, again, slow rate, limited tidal volume, and typically volume AC. Oops, keep pressing the wrong thing. All right, so again, this is how do we know where we're at? So air trapping, this is probably the one time where I borrow someone's stethoscope. I have no idea where my stethoscope is, but like this, the exam actually matters. So if you listen to the patient and they're still exhaling and the ventilator triggers another breath, by definition, they're air trapping, right? That exam finding is incredibly reliable. And then the next thing you do is you look over your shoulder and look at the graphics and you go, yep, that's kind of what I heard. And then, you want to quantify it, right? Is there auto peep? For dynamic hyperinflation, we want to quantify it by doing a PPLAT. Most people tend not to capture the end expiratory volume. That's kind of a difficult maneuver to do uh, in most units. Uh, we typically requires additional equipment. So PPLAT's probably a reasonable strategy. Remember in some patients, so our morbidly obese asthma patients, their PPLAT may be elevated no matter what you do. Um, so you may even have to consider dropping an esophageal balloon in that situation to get after uh, transpulmonary pressure. So again, for dynamic hyperinflation, we're looking on the inspiratory side, PIP minus plateau. And for uh, looking at air trapping and the quantity of air trapping, 
uh, and potential for hemodynamic collapse from reducing the gradient for venous return, we're going to put an end expiratory pause in, and we're going to measure the PEEP above set PEEP. So how do we do the maneuver? Right now, our modern ventilators, fortunately, will time it for us. It used to be that we had to actually occlude uh, the valve ourselves and try and time it. Um, but now, you could do the maneuver. You set the maneuver for either end inspiratory hold or an end expiratory hold. Don't take the number that the machine says. Freeze the graphics and scroll back across and actually look at it. Because if the patient's not paralyzed, and they're actually, if it's an end inspiratory pause, and they're sucking in because they want more than you're giving them, what's going to happen to the PPLAT that the machine reads? It's going to be artificially low, right? And if they're trying to exhale against the expiratory valve, it'll be artificially high. So you want to do the maneuver, and you want to look at the graphics and actually freeze it and see that there's a horizontal uh, line, so it's truly a pause maneuver. Uh, that you're measuring. Again, the machine's just going to guess at it. And it's not something that I ask people to measure for me either. I do the maneuver myself and actually measure it myself. Because you're going to be making all the decisions on, on, off that. If you're doing it off a false number, that's going to be a really bad day. And so auto peeps are gr greater than 10. So remember, auto peeps different than peep I. Peep I is the total number. So if you have peep set at 8, and your total PEEP is 22, that's your PEEP I, right? Your auto PEEP in that is 14. So auto PEEPs that are double digits are worth noting, right? Those are, those are the patients that you want to be able to do things to. Now the next question is, how long does it take when you switch the ventilator to see a change in the patient? What do you guys think? Hours, like when we try and recruit someone with PEEP? Yes, seconds, sometimes a minute, but you will see it almost immediately. And that's the great thing, again, about asthma. You do something and you're at the bedside and you remeasure it, right? And that way you can get instant kind of decision, oop, that was not a good idea, or okay, looks like we still have room to go, let's keep going. So if I have someone who's got auto peep of five and I start increasing the respiratory rate because I think they're ready, and the next thing I see is they air trap, and then I measure you know, their auto peep, and it's now doubled. I know, all right, they're not ready yet. Put them back on where they were before. But you get that information almost instantaneously. We used to talk a lot more about this. Again, most of these patients we now make passive. But it's always on the boards, so it's probably worth noting. So part of setting peep in asthma is um, now we use a flow-triggered system, but it's still essentially looking for delta in pressure. So let's say that you have total PEEP of 10, and the machine thinks you only have a PEEP of 5, and you set the trigger at minus 2 centimeters of water. It's going to be looking for you to breathe down from 10 to 3 rather than 5 to 3 to be able to trigger. And you can imagine if you're sitting with, an, uh, with a PEEP I of 20, and you need to go down that far. Those are the patients you see do this and nothing's happening. That's because their worker trigger is incredibly high because the machine doesn't know they have auto peep, right? It, it is peep compensating the trigger, but only for the peep it thinks the patient has, not for the peep that the patient actually has. So what we used to always talk about is you want to go up on the peep so that the PEEP compensation will make the work a trigger better. Non-invasive, that's still a strategy. Again, most of these patients where that matters, we've taken them out of the game. Um, but as they start getting better, it's something to think about because they are eventually going to need to trigger again. All right, so uh, in terms of respiratory acidosis, elevated PEEP eyes and PEEP plats greater than 30 are what people talk about. But again, there's no cutoff. Right? So if this person's incredibly thin and they have a P-plat of 30, that's probably not a great number. If they're morbidly obese and they also have, you know, some ascites, that actually, the transpulmonary pressure may be nothing, right? It's the pressure inside the alveoli minus the pressure outside. 
Uh, and if most of it's an external pressure like bear hug, that's not going to injure them. But using PPLAT of 30 in someone who's kind of has a standard habitus, probably a reasonable thing to, uh, as a cutoff. If, a, if the PPLAT's 50, probably worrisome. If it's 20, you're probably okay. In between, you're just going to have to guess whether or not they're in trouble or not. And that's where you start again looking at are there other indicators that look like they're bad? Like, do they still have a lot of airflow obstruction? Are they uh, air trapping? And then if you think they're air trapping and that number is on the low high side, it's probably something to continue to try and uh, modify. Um, again, I mentioned this before, but this is, this is the norm. Everyone's going to harass you. And the thing about status asthmaticus is it all breaks, right? It will break eventually. Um, so if you sit on your hands and you just kind of do this, they will get better. The problem is in the ICUs, we don't like to sit on our hands and watch. We like to do things. And more things is typically better than less things in our mind. But in this disease, most of it is just waiting. Just waiting and they will tell you when they're ready to get better. Um, again, just looking at uh, influence of respiratory rate. Respiratory rate's generally not going to change your peak pressure. I agree with this to an extent. It will if you're trying to change your eye time and flow. But if you hold eye time stable, then uh, your peak pressure is not going to change, right? But your plateau pressure as you go down will get better, which is what we want. And your auto peak will get better, which is what we want. So uh, is extrinsic peak okay? So, anyone, what PEEP strategy do you guys use? Shout it out. None, some, I kind of do this. What do you guys do? Dr. Lantry, what do you say that? For, For PEEP. Yeah. Just in a standard patient or the asthmatic patient? Really, really bad asthmatic patient. Three, five, six. Okay. Out. Will you ever go up from there? Look at the curves. Look at how the volumes are doing. Look at what movements I have. I mean, I think that's all very reasonable. So essentially, what you're saying, use your data, and I think that's the key thing. So we already talked about how PEEP can reduce your work at trigger. There's also some su suggestion that PEEP can actually help with your mechanics, and again, kind of. Conceptually, that seems odd. Why would you create a pressure gradient to airflow, you know, where theoretically you should make it harder for someone to breathe if you set PEEP there, right? You're essentially, if you have atmospheric pressure or you have 10 centimeters of water pressure, you would expect that the 10 centimeters of water will create more resistance to flow than if there was ZEEP on board. But there's this idea of the waterfall effect. There is a threshold in patients. So remember, in asthma, you're pushing air fast, and you have collapsible vessels, right? The faster air moves in collapsible vessels, the less pressure is in there, and they collapse, right? So they'll hit a velocity, a flow, of which you have a lot of collapse of your airways. If you set PEEP that's below the auto PEEP, Theoretically, you are not going to create more resistance, kind of like here. So this is a wall with a waterfall. If your auto peep is uh, at this level and your external peep is above that, theoretically, you're going to create a resistance. But if it's below that, it doesn't see any of that. It has no impact on the resistance. So this was actually tested in some folks um, a few years ago. So um, I think it was Amato, uh, Atul Mahotra up in Boston, and some other folks. So they looked at people who had either asthma or COPD, and they changed the application of PEEP, and then they looked at what happened to things. And largely what they reported is in some patients, you either had reduction in the plateau pressure or you had stabilization of the plateau pressure without worsening until you hit some threshold and then all of a sudden 
you created more resistance, more air trapping, and then your plateau pressure went up. Um, the problem is, actually, there's variable responses. So on this curve, what we're looking at is you want to see things going under the dotted line. That means that your plateau pressure here is getting better and, um, and your FRC is getting lower. So some people have clear benefit, right? And up to a point. There are other people where it doesn't seem to harm. So you can see it's kind of horizontal across until you get to a threshold and then it goes up. But there are some people where it looks like it harms from the outset. So what I typically do is kind of like what Jim does, I start at five, but if they're still really in trouble, then I will go up to up to no more than 80% of um, their peep eye, um, but I will do it again at the bedside. So I'll take the peep up a little, and then I'll measure all the mechanics again and see, all right, this is a patient who gets worse, this is a patient who gets better, but again, that's something you don't wanna just do and walk away. That's something where really it needs to be a clinician at the bedside making that decision. So permissive hypercapnia, as before I said, it's very different than deliberate hypercapnia. You don't take a normal patient and make their PCO2 100. It's just these people will not let us, all the things that we had to do to make them normal carbia will hurt them. So we wait until their physiology is ready, and then we start normalizing them again. So if their PPAP's low, their auto PEEP's low, that's the time where I'm like, all right, let's see if we can unparalyze them. Let's see if we can go up on the respiratory rate. And again, you'll get that feedback right away. And there'll be some people who just stutter for a day, two days, three days. They're like, this sucks. I thought they were getting better, but they will get better. They will break. The only way we'll get them into trouble is if we um, continue to push them faster than, uh, than they're ready to go. Um, few things. So exhaled CO2. So, the great thing is exhaled CO2 has become much cheaper, so we see it all the time now, right? It's available, it has a lot of benefits for some things we do. So in really bad asthma, is your exhaled CO2 and PaCO2 close or separated? Super separated, right? It's dead space, right? So what happens as they get better? They come closer together, right? So what happens to the exhaled CO2 as a really bad asthmatic gets better? It goes up. And people are like, oh my God, it's going up. Call ECMO. That actually happened. And it's not, again, it's not because people aren't really smart. It's just, it takes a while to think it through. You're like, wait a second. If they're getting better, that means that, you know, from this equation, that exhaled CO2 should become more and more reflective of PaCO2. And if the PaCO2 is 90 and the exhaled was 30 and they're getting better and now the exhaled's 50, that does not mean they're failing. That actually means they're probably getting better. And how do you tell? You go back to the ventilator, you retest the mechanics, and you get an ABG and you actually measure the PaCO2, right? So again, exhaled's not a bad thing. I would use it in these people because if it goes to zero, there's only two reasons why, right? They either arrested or they got extubated, right? So it's not a bad uh, thing to have at all, but it can be uh, misunderstood, especially in this disease, because again, it's going opposite of the way we want the PaCO2 to do, but that's just physiology, right? The dead space is getting better. All right, other adjuncts. So just really quickly, so Heliox, um, a lot of people use it, um, unclear of benefit. So obviously the idea is less turbulent flow through these airways, uh, through the constricted airways. We do know it probably delivers bronchodilator better than without heliox. The downside is, remember, it's a mixture of helium and oxygen. So if the patient has a big FiO2 requirement, you can't give heliox unless they paradoxically improve. So if their gas exchange improves, their FiO2 requirement it may actually go down. You may get away with it. So if they had a FiO2 requirement of 40, you might get away with 30%, but buyer beware. But they're, clearly you're not gonna get away if they need 80%, right? 
right? Um, so the more helium, the less the oxygen. Uh, the more helium, the better reducing the turbulent flow. Again, the downside, the less the oxygen. So um, recently there was a study where they looked at folks who had airflow obstruction, pretty, uh, pretty uh, significant, so moderate to severe, and they gave them either an air-oxygen mixture or a heliox, and they looked at a variety of their parameters from their uh, peak air inspiratory pressure, which got better on heliox, makes sense, but their plateau pressure did not, uh, and their uh, intrinsic PEEP did not improve with heliox. So again, may be helpful in some patients, but it's not gonna be a home run. It's not, let's just pull, it, pull out the heliox and go to the bar and we're done for the night. Oops. Uh, and when you look at the crossovers, again, you can see that most people, so they got what is traditional, which is air oxygen, got heliox, pips went down, and then they went back to traditional air oxygen mixtures, and uh, pips went back up, but you really didn't see much benefit across the things we really care about, which is the plateau pressure and, uh, and the auto peep. Um, mucus plugging, it's real. Um, when you look at autopsy studies, some of their airways could just be filled with mucus. Um, putting a bronchoscope down in someone who's really, really bronchospastic is bold. Um, I would say probably the best time to do this is if we cannulate them. Now you're safe. You're doing almost all your gas exchange off the, uh, off the ECMO circuit. You can easily rest them get rid of your CO2, and then you can put a bronchoscope down and see if you want to be able to remove some of that mucus. But again, there are places where people have done this without ECMO support in really, really sick patients. It's just one of those things of, it's a, it, it would be a high-risk procedure. Not that it can't be done, but relatively high-risk. Um, ECMO rescue. Rescue again, like I mentioned before, the key thing really in this is either you you think that your airways are totally filled with mucus, or you have a reason to get their CO2 down dramatically, or they've coded and now they require, due to severe stunning, yeah, some mechanism for hemodynamic support with a bridging strategy. Right, it's either bridge to recovery or you think that somehow something's going to happen, so it's not just VA ECMO because they coded. Um, and here, most of our uh, VV ECMO is done up here rather than down here, but we have uh, had some patients who've done quite well uh, with asthma, uh, with ECMO. And again, the key issue with it is when, when we're dealing with, uh, with hypoxemia and refractory hypoxemia, your cannula size is going to be key because you need huge cardiac output to be able to uh, oxygenate the patient, right? So it's going to be dependent on how much cardiac output's going through the circuit versus the patient's native cardiac output to be able to figure out uh, how you're going to be able to support them from an oxygenation requirement. With CO2 removal, very different. CO2 removal requires flows that are much, much lower, and it just requires sweep gas to get rid of it. So eventually, I expect through eCore technology as it comes to the US, that we're gonna use cannulas similar to what we do for dialysis to be able to just sweep away CO2 and put them on much lower settings on the ventilator to be able to protect them from barotrauma. So more to come on that. Currently, we've only done A-Long once. Is that right, Jim? Right, so it's, it's IND. So in that, because it's a, well, it's a NDE, new device. Um, so we, there's a company in Pittsburgh called A-Long that we had one patient with status asthmaticus about four years ago that we used the A-Long uh, system on that, but normally what we'll do here is just use traditional ECMO cannulas, traditional size uh, to be able to uh, cannulate folks and manage them from their asthma. So, in summary, now you can see why we kind of said, hey, stop bagging the patient. Paralyze them, give them a beta agonist, put them on VCAC, turn the pressure up, turn the rate down, give them 
Not a huge title volume, but not an incredibly small title volume. If you know how to do it, check your PPLAT and your auto peep. Maybe use some ketamine, use Epi if you need it, and send them to us because the patient needs ECMO. And that's what we recommended. She actually, she came fixed and dilated, uh, and uh, we thought, uh, this is gonna be bad. We still cannulated her. Ultimately, it turned out she had a right atrial puncture from uh, their needle. Uh, so she coded, she got a bedside pericardial window, um, and then went down, got a uh, repair of her right atrium, went to the cardiac surgery ICU, still fixed and dilated, woke up like two days later and uh, got decannulated and did fine, had no neurologic uh, thing. The only thing she was pissed off is she got traked and she didn't like the scar uh, that it left. She did come back in the second time and got cannulated a few years later, but the long and short of it is, um, this comprehensive strategy, almost no one should die of status asthmaticus. If they get you alive, just about no one should die. We, again, need to figure out what to do in the field with these folks, but there's a broad range of spectrum of support. We should manage them. And the key thing is just don't go faster than the patient will allow you to go. Thanks so much. If the patient is in the ventilator, how much time you wait till decide that she may need uh, ECMO? So I don't usually wait on time for ECMO. I wait on are they getting better or not. So um, you know you can allow someone potentially to go two weeks on a ventilator with status asthmaticus. But if you're doing this kind of stuttering thing where they get they brady down, they get really sick. Um, which happens for some of these people have really uh, prolonged and refractory status asthmaticus, uh, or if they have a pneumothorax or two, I would clearly bite the bullet and put them on ECMO. But I would normally, as long as it looks like they're going in the right direction or stable, I would just manage them on the ventilator. It's when you feel like your back's against the wall. So for instance, if you're thinking about inhaled anesthetics, which has a whole additional struggle with it of you can't use it for that long, you need to scavenge the gas, you need an anesthesiologist to sit at the bedside. They're really not amused by the whole situation as well. That's typically when I'm considering uh, ECMO, unless again, they have a brain reason to need it. Another question about the new muscular broker. Some people recommend only for 24 hours, some people are saying 48 hours or what is your strategy? So it's a great question. So if you're talking about for early ARDS, the cisatricurium protocol was for 48 hours. Uh, for this, it's really you, will, you need to see what the patient needs. So if I can keep the patient passive and I can just do it with sedation, and I don't think they're in trouble. Now remember, if you measure EMGs on patients, even if they're not triggering, they may still be fighting the ventilator. But if you really think they're passive and they're doing okay, then I'll stop the paralytic and see how they do, especially if I want the rate to, to pick up because they're getting better. But some days you're just like, all right, let's check train of four, all right, let's see how they're doing, let's let the rate go up a little bit, all right, that wasn't a great idea, all right, let's reparalyze them. Uh, but typically I'm doing boluses. Um, there is some theoretic advantage of cisatricurium because it's a non-steroidal to potentially use that as your, as your agent if you're also giving a steroid. But normally I just do boluses of rocuronium and just kind of make decisions based on their mechanics. Are they ready to stop being paralyzed or not? Thank you so much for the great lecture. My question is actually about the PEEP. Um, you showed some graphs about how you know a certain level of PEEP, the waterfall phenomenon, can be harmful. Uh, if you decide to paralyze the patient, does it really matter? Why can't we just do zero PEEP after paralysis? Well, what you're trying to do is you're actually trying to theoretically stent open the airways. So all these patients who had that, they were all paralyzed, right? So. Um, 
you still, you still have airflow obstruction, you just don't have dysynchrony that you're talking about, like if the patient isn't paralyzed. So in this situation, you know, again, you, what you're just trying to do is help the, uh, help reduce the resistance to airflow obstruction because paralyzed or not, there's still mucus there, there's still airway edema, there's still all of that that you need to overcome. And that's what you're trying to do. Uh, by paralyzing the patient, what you're doing is taking them out of the game of either generating CO2 or trying to breathe faster than you want them to breathe. 